Our reading this morning is Genesis 43. Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. When they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send you back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men who are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the man to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money? which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he, he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. 
When Joseph came home, they brought into his house with him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm glad to have you here with us today, and a special welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. It's looking forward to getting to know you, and just very glad that you're here. And uh, we'll turn our attention now to the word of God. Trust that you still have Genesis chapter 43 open. I want to uh, show you some things from that very important chapter. I know I began, for those of you who are visiting, uh, you should know we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's a book of uh, beginnings, it's foundational, and it's now uh, coming to a close I know I began last week's sermon uh, with a TV analogy, but it seems appropriate to do it again. So I hope you'll indulge me, even if it might feel like a rerun to you. I, I mentioned that when I do watch TV, it's either sports or a program like Mountain Men. Uh, but truth be told, I also like any kind of home improvement show. Uh, whether it features people building cabins in Maine or renovating old mansions in Missouri or, you know, fixing up some beachfront bargain in California. I, I just enjoy seeing the amazing transformations in construction or architecture or design. And the producers of these shows, and there are an endless variety of these shows out there, the producers know that we like seeing radical transformations, which is why the whole show is designed around that payoff moment. You know, the, basically the, the whole show is about the last three minutes when you finally get to see the new and improved house or fully restored vintage Coke machine or the person's brand new nose or whatever. Doesn't, doesn't matter what the subject is, the formula is always the same. The formula is you showcase the ugliness of the original. Um, you, show, you, you spend the bulk of the, of the time of the program showing progress, 
but always like very general progress. You show very little detail, always have the very tight shots so you don't give anything away. And then close to the end, you spend a few minutes staging. And then in the last three minutes, you know, alternating between wide panoramic colorized shots of the final product. And then you switch between that and, you know, the awestruck owners who are barely even able to speak as they see it, other than somehow they're able to take the Lord's name in vain quite a bit. Anyway, that's the formula. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's a tried and true formula. In some ways, Genesis 43 is like the 43-minute mark on any given show on HGTV. HGTV. You know, we're, it's at this point where we're eagerly anticipating the, the big payoff, and we feel that it's coming very soon. That payoff being when Joseph finally reveals his true identity to his brothers. And we're so locked into that coming moment that we're in danger of missing the fact that there's transformation happening all the way along. There's, we, we saw that last week. There's, there's, there's sanctification happening. There's transformation happening. The Lord is working. The Lord being the master builder that he is. He's, he's busy executing all of his sovereign designs for his people, for us. And in these chapters that are leading up to this big payoff, the Lord is transforming these selfish, envious, sensual, anxious men into worthy patriarchs, worthy to lead a people that God is forming for his own possession. And we get to see, we get like an inside peek at the transformation that the Lord is bringing about. So already in this passage, before the big reveal, we see miraculous transformation. In our time together, I want to highlight two of these transformations. The first, we see a transformation from faith, sorry, from fear to faith. It's a movement from fear to faith. And then secondly, um, from famine to feast. The first of these, from fear to faith, will take the bulk of our attention. And then towards the end, we'll turn our attention to another transformation from famine to feast. But I got to tell you that more than the what, I am interested in having us understand the why the how. What accounts for these amazing transformations? And the answer? The mercy of God. The mercy of God. That is what this text showcases. The overwhelming mercy and compassion and grace of our God. It's his mercy that moves us. We are changed by being confronted with God's glory which is, at the end of the day, his goodness. So let's dig into this passage so that we can meditate on the Lord's mercy, on his goodness, so as to be utterly transformed by it. We want to be changed by this confrontation of the mercy and grace of God. So let's look at the first transformation from fear 
to faith. Since I'm recycling material from last week, let me just reprise a verse of William Cooper's hymn that we looked at quite a bit last week. That hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And uh, I'm reprising this particular verse because it is a perfect summary, it seems to me, of this chapter and therefore this sermon. The verse I'm thinking of goes like this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. That's gold. And it's, it's gold because it's true. And we see evidence of exactly that in this uh, glorious chapter, Genesis 43 moving from fear to faith in view of the mercies of God. So let's just uh, tease it out. Let's just see how this works. A fearful saint, I think, is the perfect way to describe Jacob as this chapter begins. He, here he is, the head of this large family with grown um, children and grandchildren, He's in the land of Canaan, a land that is by no means exempt from this global famine that has ravaged and endured now for years at this point. Uh, this famine is threatening their very existence. This is a matter of life and death for them, as it is for the whole known world at that time. Mercifully, there's, there's grain to be had in Egypt. And already Jacob had sent his sons to Egypt to buy portions for the family so that they could live and not die. However, as you'll remember, it was not, that was not an easy trip. The, the man in charge had accused them of being spies. He had, even right now, he was holding Simeon in custody until the other brothers could return with the youngest son, Benjamin, which would constitute proof that they were who they said they were. Added to this was the complicating factor that when they stopped for the night and then later when they returned all the way home, all of them found the, their money that they had brought, that they had thought that they had given to the steward for the food. They found that money still in their sacks. That is a terrible feeling even at the best of times I a few nights ago I got a large French vanilla cappuccino from the Tim Hortons in Warsaw and being the modern sort of guy that I am I I paid with Apple pay okay I I handed my phone to the girl in the window and she took it and she held it near the the reader and it beep like it was supposed to do and as she handed it back to me I I said are we good? And she says, yep, have a good night. And away I went. Well, a little while later, I see this notification on my phone, the receipt, if you will. And it says, city card, Tim Hortons, Warsaw, amount 0.00. Uh-oh. I guess it didn't take. I, well, I felt horrible. I I was too far away at that point. I felt terrible. I tossed and turned all night. 
come to think of it, that might have more to do with the fact that I drank a large French vanilla cappuccino <laughs> at 8 p.m. But still, I felt really bad. I still do. And now I can't show my face in that place ever again. I'm avoiding Warsaw like the plague. Now, that's just a fraction of what these brothers are thinking and feeling right now. They, they don't want to show their faces around Egypt at all, ever again. But they have to. And they're going to have to do it with Benjamin. If they have any hope of rescuing another brother, Simeon, not to mention buying more grain. This thing is very, very complicated. But after explaining all of this to Jacob back in the last chapter, he flatly refused, you'll recall. He, this is how the last chapter ends. He, it, it ends with Jacob saying, my son shall not go down with you. And his refusal is, is based solely on fear. Fear of losing yet another son, which would make it three, including both of his favorite sons. In his mind, it's better to die of starvation than of sorrow. And this is what he figures in his fear. And so what we have in the white space between the end of chapter 42 and the beginning of chapter 43 is a sort of holding pattern. It's a, it's a stubborn standoff, if you will. Jacob's fear is crippling. He's, he's paralyzed by it. He's unable to move, even though time is moving and food is depleting. And, and if this helps, you just picture a giant hourglass. But instead of grains of sand in it, you've got grains of corn that they bought in their last trip to Egypt. And, and what is time but a giant grain drain? And, and you can almost, you know, you're, you're seeing the food deplete and the time go by and, it's, and the family is moving closer and closer to extinction. This is a problem. To use uh, Cooper's metaphor, it's like a, a giant dark nimbus cloud, or as my mother-in-law calls them, rain clouds. Sorry, that's, an, that's a bit of an inside joke. By the way, I'm very glad to have my mother-in-law here visiting from Georgia for a couple of weeks. She's uh, a wonderful uh, person to have as a mother-in-law. Anyway, it's like a, a giant dark nimbus cloud that, that are forming over directly over your head and they're threatening to drown you in rain or, or worse, snow. And I wonder, have you ever been there? Are you there right now? Is, is this how you would describe your situation right now? Living in crippling fear of whatever outcome would be most threatening to your idea of the good life. I don't know what this is for you. I, bluntly, what I'm asking you is fear of whatever outcome would be most threatening to your idol. Whether like Jacob, that, that's a cherished relationship, or whether that's your relationship, or your reputation, whether that's your comfort, your lifestyle, whatever it is, you know 
And you know the good that you ought to do, but your fear leaves you paralyzed. And so you, you live in denial. And I'm, I'm going to totally bypass the opportunity for a, a very easy Egypt joke at that point. You, you're, because it's a very serious thing. You living in denial. You're, you're burying your head in the sand. You're hoping that some of this, that, that all of this will just go away somehow, magically in a vacuum. You're hoping that the circumstances will just change and that your problem can be avoided. That, that's what you would, and I would just love to happen. And God's great mercy can, first of all, be seen in the fact that he often does not change our circumstances, allowing us to avoid our problems. Instead, God is merciful to like, drain out the sand in the hourglass, the sand that we've buried our head in, drain it out so that our heads are once again exposed and we're forced to deal with the problem. It's, it's not easy, I'll grant you, when this happens, but it's gracious. It's, it's very gracious. And this is how our chapter begins. Noting that the, the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and not only that, but the food that they've purchased was now gone. Okay, so the situation had now become critical. And as I say, this is a mercy from God. Because Jacob's fearful hand has now been forced. He instructs his son, go again to Egypt and buy us a little food. As, as you can see, he's still in denial if he expects his sons to just up and go to denial. You didn't expect me to resist that opportunity two times, did you? Well, this gives the brothers an opportunity to, to breach a subject that no doubt they've been wanting to, to, to broach for some time, but out of deference to their father, they've had to just remain silent. But, but since Jacob's opened the door now, this is the perfect opportunity to remind their father that they can't possibly return to Egypt without bringing Benjamin with them. And you can see how Judah is emerging as the leader of his brothers, the leader of this family even, um, by being the spokesperson. And then you can see it in his very gracious and effective words. He, he knows that the hang-up here is Benjamin's life. This is, this is what Jacob fears for. This is the hang-up. And so um, Judah makes this bold and gracious proposal. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we might live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This, this bears only a, a passing resemblance to the proposal that Reuben made in the previous chapter. Do you remember this? Uh, when Reuben offered to take custody of Benjamin, 
but he offered his sons as a pledge of Benjamin's safety. He, he proposed that if, if he didn't bring back Benjamin to Jacob, then his sons would have to bear the blame, which would mean that they would be killed. And, you know, that, that, that kind of self-serving, preserving proposal was unattractive. I think we can all agree. And it was ineffective. It had absolutely no effect on Jacob whatsoever. On the other hand, Jacob's or, sorry, Judah's proposal here is self-sacrificing. It's gracious. So much so that it, it bears a, more than a passing resemblance of one who would come eventually in the line of Judah one who would offer himself as the pledge of our eternal safety. Judah here looks like the one who was to come, who, as we sing in one of our favorite songs, who in love became perfect man to bear my blame. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see in Judah a much more striking resemblance to our Savior when he offers himself as a substitute for his brother. But in both of these cases, we have powerful pictures of the great mercy of God, the grace of the Lord that is seen in his sacrifice and his substitution on behalf of sinners. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to behold. Anyway, this gracious proposal is compelling to Jacob, and he agrees to allow Benjamin to go. But he gives two very wise instructions. For one, they're, they're going to have to settle this issue with the payment. So he tells the boys to bring double the money. You know, <coughs> half of it goes to their previous order. Maybe there was some kind of simple oversight. And then the other half is to pay for a new batch of food. Also, Jacob wants them to see the wisdom in bringing a gift to this head honcho in Egypt. This is one of Jacob's uh, old strategies, you know. This is how he prepared for the reunion with his brother Esau, you'll remember. He, he uh, put together a very elaborate gift to go ahead of him to kind of grease the wheels um, as he meets with his presumably still angry brother. And so J Jacob's uh, thinking that a gift is, in this case, is probably going to act, you know, work in the same way. It's going to be a sort of lubricant so that the governor won't be as rough as he was the first time. And the best kind of gi gift, um, in, definitely in those days, but in some, to some degree in our day as well, is to, is to bring a sampler of the local delicacies, you know, the kind of stuff that you can't get anywhere else, the stuff that your area is known for, like, I don't know, Nunday mustard or some wine from the Finger Lakes region or um, maple syrup from Cartwrights or some beef on wick or weck or whatever it is, no one knows. But that stuff, bring that, that kind of stuff. And apparently Canaan is known for its balm, for its honey, for its gum, its myrrh, pistachios, and almonds. So that's what they're going to scrounge around for in this famine and bring to the man in charge. 
Now, what jo Jacob could not have known is that this wouldn't be the first time that these boys had something to do with a caravan containing gum and balm and myrrh traveling towards Egypt. That's just a, a really subtle little reminder from the narrator. And I wonder if the brothers made this connection to the Ishmaelites, the fact that they had sold their brother into slavery. Well, there's one more necessary thing to do in preparation for such a significant trip, and that is to pray. And what we find in verse 14 is a powerful expression of Jacob's faith that had now replaced his fear. He calls upon God Almighty. In, in the original here, he's, he's calling upon El Shaddai, which is the name that God had revealed to, first to Abraham and more recently to Jacob himself uh, back in chapter 35. Jacob is, is invoking that same powerful God, name of God, that, that had the God who had been faithful and merciful and gracious to him all of these years as he's now thinking clearly. And what does he pray for? Mercy. May this all-powerful God grant you mercy before this man. And may he send back your, your other brother and Benjamin. Mercy, grace, undeserved favor. This is, this is exactly what Jacob needs. This is what these sons need. And this is what we, all of us, desperately need. We need the Lord God to, as, as Pastor Matt prayed a few minutes ago, um, you know, praying this, this psalm, we need the Lord God to not treat us as our sins deserve, but to deal graciously with us, to be merciful to us. By faith, Jacob believes that, that this is what an all-powerful God can do. And, and Jacob believes that this is what an all-powerful God delights to do. A further expression of his faith can be seen in what he says next. He says, as for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. And admittedly, at first glance, this, is, this kind of sounds like hopeless resignation. I've shared with you before, whether you asked for it or not, I've shared before my pet peeve concerning the phrase, it is what it is. You know, I, I, I dislike that mainly because I'm a nerd and I love logic. And technically speaking, formally speaking, that's what's called a tautology. It's, it's arguing in a circle. You're, providing, you're not advancing the argument at all. You're just going in a vicious circle by stating the same thing. But I do understand rhetorically what people mean when they say it. So I can, for the most part, let it slide. People just mean that even though they don't necessarily like whatever circumstance they're describing, they're, they're at least willing to accept it. They're, they're, they're prepared to not fight against it. 
when they say, it is what it is. Esther said something very similar when she was about to have an audience with the king, who also was her husband. But the problem was, she was uninvited, which is problematic. You need to be invited by the king, even if he's your husband. And she said, you'll, re you'll recall maybe, if I perish, I perish. Which was not a statement of hopeless resignation. It was a statement of great faith. She she's willing to do whatever was necessary to save her people. And I think we should understand Jacob's words in, in much the same light. If, if you want to see the transformation that God has mercifully wrought in Jacob's life, all you have to do, really, is compare verse 14 with verse 38 of the last chapter. Just look there and do that with me. Back in that last chapter, in verse 38, he said, essentially, if I'm bereaved of my son, my gray hairs will go down to Sheol in sorrow. But now he says, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. There, there's, a, there's a transformation that has occurred there. This is, this is Jacob releasing the outcome that he fears the most. This is an expression of the fact that his faith is giving way, his fear is giving way to, to faith as he casts himself upon the mercy of God. Friends, the same can be true of you today. If, if only you would release that outcome that you are so terrified of and simply trust El Shaddai, who's not only the all-powerful God, but he's the all-merciful God the compassionate God. This morning, you can experience transformation from fear to faith and all because of the great mercy of God. Let's turn briefly to a second transformation that we see in the text. And that is from famine to feast. William Cooper encourages us that the reality that, that the, is that the, the very clouds that we are fearing, the darkness of them means that they are big with mercy, that they're laden with blessing, and at any moment they're going to just, as my mother-in-law would say, they're fixing to let loose and drench us with blessing. And the second half of this chapter, really from verse 15 onwards, has us soaking in the extravagant mercy of God towards sinners. So the brothers arrive in Egypt. Again, they uh, arrive amid a throng of people streaming in from all directions, all these different countries seeking food. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you almost get the impression that Joseph has been looking for his brothers. How else do you explain that he spots them in this throng of people? You get the impression that every day, you know, in the, in the penthouse of his pyramid, or however it worked, at the window with binoculars, he's scanning the crowd, 
eagerly anticipating his brother's return. And when I read this, I have not flashbacks, but I guess flash forwards to the prodigal son's father who was able to spot his son when he was still a long way off, Jesus says in the parable. And he comes running to meet him. And even if you won't grant me that, perhaps you can at least see an allusion to the actions of that same merciful father in Joseph's instructions. When when he finally sees them with Benjamin, he says, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. Doesn't this sound very much to you like kill the fatted calf and let us eat and be merry? It's a an extraordinary description, an evocative description of the mercy that is in store for sinners. I, I think that's one of the most beautiful parables in the Bible about the grace of God. The prodigal son who had dishonored his father and squandered his inheritance on debauchery, what did he deserve? Well, not even servant status. But what was he met with? Mercy. These brothers, these man-stealers, these mass murderers, these sexual degenerates, what do they deserve? At the very least, they deserve to rot in an Egyptian prison. What do they get instead? Treasure. And a banquet. As for the treasure, these brothers are anxious to clear up this whole issue of, of the money that they found in their sacks, and they explain the whole situation to the steward of the house. You, could, you get the impression that they're shaking in their boots as they explain this. They're bending over backwards to, to proclaim their innocence. And the steward of the house who turns out to be a spokesman for, for Joseph, his master, and ultimately, the steward is a spokesman for God. Here's this pagan Egyptian encouraging these Hebrew men with the reassuring news that the God of their father and their God had put the treasure in the sacks for them. He said, I received your money. Now, I would caution you not to get bogged down in some of these details. I don't, what I'm saying is, I don't think it's very fruitful to go down the road of, well, isn't this steward just lying? And what do we think about lying? And behind that, isn't Joseph lying? And isn't this wrong? I'm not afraid of those questions and those answers. I'm not ashamed of the Bible. I just don't think Moses intends for us to camp out on those details. I hope you don't think that's a cop-out. I, I, I think Moses wants to just fix our attention on something much more important. It's as simple as, as this. If I th just think about it like this, if this helps. You know, if I, after the service today, went back to Timmy's in Warsaw, 
cap in hand and $2.29 in hand and explain my whole story, what do you think they would say? The manager would say, it's all good, brother. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure we got it. You're, you're covered. I, I would discover that all of my fears were unfounded. I'd be met with nothing but, but grace and mercy. Why? Because they're, they're a great Canadian company, and, and that's, just how, that's just how Canadians are. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is who your God is. He's, he's merciful and, and he's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. You expect him to chide. You expect him to be angry with you forever. But the reality is that he does not deal with you or me according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed all of our transgressions from us. This is your God, and this is what you have. Treasure in the place of your transgressions. And you've got a feast in the place of a famine. This is what the brothers have been invited to. Simeon now now that he's been released from prison, is, is able to join them. Look at verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought their gift and bowed down to him to the ground. Now, press pause. Freeze frame. What is this? This is an even better picture to superimpose over top of Joseph's first dreams because now it includes all 11 sheaves. All 11 brothers are here bowing on their faces before their brother. And what is this? But a, a perfect picture of the truth that the promises of God are always going to be fulfilled. And what do we see in the actions of Joseph that follow? But a perfect picture of the incredible grace and mercy of God. He, he greets Benjamin by pronouncing a blessing over him. He, he blesses him with God's grace. This is, this is all about God's mercy. He's over, Joseph is so overwhelmed with love and affection for his father and his brothers, and especially Benjamin, and the Hebrew of verse 30 literally says that Joseph's mercy grew warm for his brother. This is all about his mercy. And here it's now heated up and about to overflow like a volcano of love and emotion and affection for his brother. So much so that he's got to run out of the room so as to not burst out in tears. And, and lunch is going to have to wait a few minutes because Joseph's got to compose himself and wash his face. And when lunch is ready, the brothers discovered, to their utter amazement, 
that they're seated in chronological order. That is amazing. I, I've got trouble remembering the birth order of three crans boys. And, he, and here's this stranger arranging 11 brothers perfectly according to their age. Who is this? Who is this? It's, it's someone, the brothers probably think, who, who's done a deep dive into their family history. Someone who has like unleashed the FBI in Egypt or whatever they are to investigate them thoroughly for the purpose of finding them guilty. That, is, that must be what this is. But no, that's not what it is. This is... This is someone who knows them intimately. This is someone who loves them unconditionally. This is someone whose mercy is growing warmer towards them by the second. And I hope you can tell that I'm not ultimately talking about Joseph here. I'm I'm standing here proclaiming to you the Lord God. He knows you thoroughly. Not for the purpose of condemning you, but for the purpose of showing compassion on you. His affection is for you. His mercy is towards you. How, saints, how can you live in fear any longer? Live in faith and, and forget your famine. He, he's inviting you to a feast. Is, is this your testimony today? Can you say... He brought me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. Can you say with the psalmist that your good shepherd prepares a table for you in the presence of my enemies? Can you say my cup overflows? Can you say surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life? Is it your expectation that that one day, You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. And at his table, you'll sit down. And there won't be any, like we see here, we see the the custom played out where Egyptians can't really associate with Hebrews. And so there's got to be separation and, and division. They can't all eat together. But are you looking forward to that day because of what Christ has accomplished for you, because of his reconciliation, that you can actually sit down at table with your Savior and your God? If so, may I remind you that it has nothing to do with what you've earned. It's got nothing to do with what you deserve. It has nothing to do with your worth or your works or your your paltry gifts. It has everything to do with the fathomless grace and mercy of God displayed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. I realize that it might look dark for you out there right now, that the clouds that are hanging over your head, they're they're threatening and, and they get black when they get big, but Take heart because they are big with mercy and they're about to break with blessings on your head. Or to quote a more recent poet, in the dark of night before the dawn, 
my soul, be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh, how long. O God of Jacob, be my strength. Brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy of our God and Savior, we will feast one day in the house of Zion. Amen? Amen.